Thank you, Andrew, for that. Good morning, Christ Community Church. That was pathetic as well, as, as well. First service was very terrible. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Oh, there we go. I like that. I'm, I'm from a culture where when you say something, it should be reciprocated. That's just, that's just me. But anyway, I'm glad that you guys are here. Welcome to Christ Community. If you are new to Christ Community, uh, you may not know who I am. Uh, if you are here at Christ Community, you may not want to know who I am. But uh, I'm Reed Kappel. I'm the pastor of high school ministries here at the Leewood campus. And, and I shared this first service. I was reminded of this uh, this week. This is today actually marks my fifth year of being here at Christ Community, which is a pretty cool thing. So thank you. And I... I know that because my daughter is five years old, so that's kind of how I gauge this. So I, I don't know which one I know more. Like, how long have I been here? How old's my daughter? I don't know. And so I don't know which one's more important, but five years nonetheless. Um, if you are new to Christ Community, you may not know uh, that we've been doing something called Open Here, and it's been our church-wide initiative to form the habit of opening the scriptures on a daily basis, hearing from God. And, and we do have this kind of reading plan. We have a, a few that you can choose from, but the, the goal isn't to try to get through the Bible uh, but, but on a daily basis, hear from God uh, through his word. And along that, in addition to that, we've been preaching through the scriptures on Sunday morning. And so uh, this, this section that we're in is, is the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And this morning, we find ourselves particularly in the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is, in, in a word, if I had to choose a word, the word that I'm thinking of is weird. It is a weird, weird book. And it's because it's written by a very weird, weird prophet. Ezekiel was, he just, I think he was disturbed. I think he had some emotional problems. I'm not sure. He could have benefited from some psychotherapy. And, and actually, as one student once uh, told me, it was a couple of years ago, he said, you know what, I've, I've been reading the book of Ezekiel, and I think he would be a really good lead singer for like a heavy metal band. And I was like, that's actually not a bad, uh, a bad description. There's just some, some dark imagery. It's kind of morbid, but you know, so I don't know if there is... Um, you know, a Hebrew hardcore band out there, but it would be really cool if they were named Ezekiel. We're the dry bones. But um, no rock and roll star does that. But um, anyway, but the, the, the book of Ezekiel, it is. It's, it's a weird book. It's, a, it's kind of a dark book. But as weird as it is, there's also this, this beauty to it in, in the way in which it builds from a, a message of judgment and condemnation to a message of mercy. And, and just as a, as a way of kind of introduction, I thought I'd share my earliest memories of the book of Ezekiel. I, I grew up going to church, but I didn't really like church, didn't really like anything about it. Uh, and I was just bored out of my mind when I would be in church. And I remember on Sunday morning, I would, I would pull out this pew Bible and the only thing I ever read, the first book I ever read was Ezekiel. And the, or, or I, I made the same mistake. Not the first book. The first book of the Bible uh, was Ezekiel, not my first book. That'd be impressive. Uh, yeah. Some people start with Dr. Seuss. I start with Old Testament prophets. But I remember vi vividly pulling this Bible out and turning randomly to Ezekiel 1 and reading. And if you've never read Ezekiel 1, you have to read it because I was convinced at the, the wise age of 12, uh, that, I, that Ezekiel, his account in, in, in chapter one, is that he's witnessing a UFO sighting. That's what I was convinced of. Because when you read it, it says, behold, I, I had this vision and there was bright flashing lights coming from the sky and a, a shiny metal object is coming out and there's sounds and lights and then creatures come out of it. I'm like, that's a UFO sighting. 
that's not a prophet. I don't know what you're talking about. So I found Ezekiel to be very entertaining as a young kid. And so even now, as I've been preparing for this sermon and studying Ezekiel, I can't get heavy metal and UFOs out of my head and think about this text. So now it's in your head. And so now we all have wrong visions of what Ezekiel's about. So I'm going to try to help unlearn some of these things as we jump in to see what is the message of this weird, bizarre, emotionally disturbed prophet. Uh, And just as a, a brief recap of the book so that you know where we are, Ezekiel is essentially broken up into three sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 24, and those are primarily about God's judgment, his holiness, his wrath against sin, and particularly against his people Israel for turning from him, turning to false gods. So that's chapters 1 through 24, really uplifting. Then you have 25 through 32, and that's primarily about God's sovereignty, his reign and rule, not just over his people, not just over Israel, but over all creation, over all nations. God's sovereignty displayed in that second section of Ezekiel. And then the final section, chapters 33 through 48, primarily deal with God's mercy. And, and, and these are just very kind of general categories to give so that you at least know kind of where the book is going. Begins with God's holiness and judgment that he cannot tolerate sin and that as the judge of all things, he must do something about it. We see that he is not just a righteous judge, but he is a powerful king who reigns and rules over all things. And lastly, this powerful judge and king is also merciful towards his people. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 37. And if you're familiar with the Bible, if you've been in church for a while, you may be familiar with this passage. It's, it's the vision that God gives Ezekiel of the valley of the dry bones. We're going to be looking at, at Ezekiel 37. And, and what I want to do as, as we open God's word and wrestle through this text is I want to look at it through kind of a, a theological lens. And what I mean by that is, is I think the, the, the message that God is wanting to bring across through Ezekiel and through this vision is the idea of, of the doctrine of regeneration. And, and that may just be a fancy word, maybe you've never heard it or whatever, but, but the, the doctrine of regeneration, I believe, is really at the heart of what God is trying to reveal through this vision. And, and to put it very simply, regeneration, we don't need to be intimidated of fancy big words, but, but it is the work of God moving things that are spiritually dead and bringing them into spiritual life. That's it. And there's a lot of depth there, but on a very simple level, regeneration is the work of God, moving things that are spiritually dead and bringing them into spiritual life. And what I want to do to look at this, as we look at Ezekiel 37, is I want to look at regeneration and ask kind of just three questions, or look at what it isn't, what it isn't, what it is, and what it does. Just very simply, what regeneration isn't, what it is, and what it does. So first off, what it isn't. Sometimes it, it's, it's helpful to, to learn the opposite of something, to, to really understand it. You know, you can learn a lot through the word not. It's not the most efficient way. You know, like if, if you have a friend who went out on a date and they come back like, hey, how was the date? Tell me about the girl. Well, she's not five foot four. She's not blonde and she's not Russian. Like, okay, that doesn't give me any indications of who she is. But if your friend comes back and says, so you're like, hey, how'd the date go? And he says, well, I will not be seeing her again. You're like, okay, now you've got an idea of what not means there. And it's not because she was kidnapped. It's just they're just not compatible. And so the word not can really give us an understanding of, of the meaning of what we're trying to study. So for example, what regeneration is not? The first thing is that it is not simply moral improvement. It's not just God making bad people good or making disobedient people 
more obedient. At the heart of what regeneration is, as I said, it is the moving of people in a state of spiritual death into spiritual life. Yes, it should result in people who are morally improved, but that is a superficial byproduct of the heart of what regeneration is. C.S. Lewis um, once said that, that for mere improvement is not redemption. He used the word redemption. I think you could say regeneration here, but it says for mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people even here and now and will in the end improve them to a degree that we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, to not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. He just says things so well. I just, oh, it just makes me jealous. But um, just confessing that. What he's saying is that at the heart of this, God is not ultimately in the business of just making more obedient, compliant, civil citizens. He is wanting to take dead people and bring them to life. It is not merely moral improvement. It is not about adopting a new lifestyle or new habits or new guidelines of morality, although it is that. It is not ultimately a new lifestyle. It is actually having a new life altogether. That is the message of regeneration. It's the message of Ezekiel 37. Regeneration is not simply moral improvement. The second thing that it is not, and we could keep going and talk about these. I'll just give you two. The second thing that it is not is that it is not advice. It is not advice that we should apply to our lives ultimately. Yes, there is a great deal about the story of the scriptures and what God is doing that we can apply and that we can provide to be uh, guidelines for our life. But ultimately, the message of regeneration is not God giving us instruction and advice on how to live. Because Ezekiel is not jumping into this valley trying to motivate these bones. Like, come on, bones, you got it. Just get on up. Just pull yourself up together by your bone straps and you can do it. He's not trying to motivate bones. Bones can't do anything. They must, if they're going to live, experience a miracle. This is not merely moral improvement or moral advice. So, and like I said, I can keep going on about what it isn't, but, but let's get to the heart of what it is. What is regeneration? And, and, and to look at it, I, I want us to see kind of three things, the, the three metaphors or, or uh, illustrations that God uses in this vision to Ezekiel. The first is the dry bones themselves. What do these dry bones indicate? What are they uh, analogous to? What is God getting across with these dry bones? So dry bones. The second is God's enlivening breath. His breath that brings about life. And then thirdly, the new life that results from this work. So the dry bones, so looking at what what regeneration is, we're going to look at the dry bones, what they are, God's enlivening breath, and our new life. The first thing is this, the dry bones. Now in Ezekiel 37, as Andrew read for us, verses 1 through 3, I want to read again to, to see this vision. We read these words in Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And then here is the vision. And it was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. 
And that last, I, I kind of love that little line. Ezekiel doesn't, he gives this kind of non-committal answer, you know. It's like, oh, you know, uh, what, what's going to happen? Maybe uh, some, I mean, I'm sure, um, I'm not sure. I mean, he's like, there's, there's a sense of almost like skepticism, but he doesn't want to doubt God in his presence. So it's just like, you know, God, what's going to happen? Maybe, I'm not sure. And so what we see is that God is making very intentional effort to communicate the reality of our deadness. Because as you read that passage, it's not a valley filled with dead bodies. It's not a valley even just filled with bones or dry bones. They're very dry bones. I mean, these are dead, dead bones. There is no life in this valley. So much so that like if zombies walked by, they would feel bad. Like, man, those bones are, they've got it rough. They do. I mean, we can at least walk around and look groggy like we have to take a nap or something, but they, that's, sorry guys, you know. That's a pretty good zombie impression. Uh, but anyway, so, so the point he's trying to bring across is that there is nothing but death in this valley. No life whatsoever. Very dry bones. God is trying to reveal our hopelessness, our helplessness, our desperation for life outside of ourselves. And he doesn't want us to just sit there. He's not just trying to say, well, you're hopeless. There it is. Let's be done with that and wrap up the book. But he wants us to understand our deadness so that we may fully appreciate and celebrate and rejoice in our aliveness. You see, because we will not fully appreciate and understand and rejoice in the good news of God's regenerative work until we understand how significant the bad news is. He wants us to understand how lost we are so that we might appreciate how found we can be in him. To illustrate in another way, um, my wife and I, we have uh, these neighbors to the west of us, and their names are Les and Candy. And my, our, our, our daughters call them Lettuce and Candy. It's, it's adorable. It's just adorable. Lettuce and Candy. And occasionally, it's maybe happened once or twice, uh, a package has been delivered and it goes to their house and they'll bring it over like, hey, read this Faberge egg came for you or whatever it is that we ordered. I don't collect Faberge eggs. But um, so they'll bring it over and it's nice of them, you know. But imagine, imagine that one day uh, Les or Lettuce, whoever, comes over and says, hey, Rita, a bill came for you in the mail and it came to our house. And I just want to let you know that I paid it. I'm like, well, thank you, Lettuce. I appreciate that very much. Now, I don't know how to respond to him until I know what? the amount of the bill. If it's just our monthly Netflix subscription, and don't judge me just because I have Netflix, okay, okay. But, but if it's just our monthly uh, Netflix subscription, I'll be like, well, that was really nice of him. And Megan and I may talk about that. Like, gosh, that was, remember when Les did that? That was so cool. And, and I may, you know, give him a really nice card at Christmas or something like that. And, and maybe even five years down the road, we might reminisce, like, remember when Les did that? That was really cool. But, but that's not going to change my life. Imagine instead that I find out that, that let's say Meg and I, we, we have accrued a significant amount of medical debt throughout our lives. And, and what if I find out that Les paid that bill? My response to him will be significantly different. It won't be, a, wow, thanks, buddy. That was, that was really nice of you. Meg, remember that time? We're going to remember that for the rest of our lives. The way I respond to Les will be drastically different. Because when we understand the weight of our debt, 
it makes the deliverance from that debt all the more glorious. In the same way, God is not just trying to disappoint us and depress us by saying, you're just a bunch of dry, dead bones. He's trying to illustrate how lost we are so that we might celebrate our foundness in him. These dry bones are meant to magnify in our hearts the work of God in moving us from spiritual deadness into a life of true spiritual life. And this work cannot be understood without seeing ourselves as dry bones. Now the second image that we see in this this vision is that of of the the breath that is breathed into these dry bones. In, In 37 verses 7 through 10, we read these words, So I prophesied, this is Ezekiel speaking, I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together. That's kind of an eerie sound, these bones in a valley just rattling, coming together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, the Lord said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, and an exceedingly great army. The point that I think God is trying to show here is that, yes, as desperate, helpless, and hopeless as we are, as dry, dead bones, like dead, dead, like there's no chance of living. Like if you've seen Princess Bride, he's not mostly dead. There's no mostly dead. They're dead, dead, okay? Dead, dead. No chance of life. And he does that so that we might see that we need work done to us outside of ourselves. And that work comes through God's spirit. The word breath in this passage can be translated as spirit. And and they're very much the similar words. And what we see is that the way in which these bones are brought into new life is the exact same way that God brought life into existence in the first place, by breathing into them. Adam was formed out of the dust and he was not alive until God's breath came into him. In the same way these bones were brought together, flesh and sinews, muscle and veins, skin, everything, but God makes it clear they're not alive yet until his breath is breathed into them. It is the same way that life began. It is the same way these bones are brought to new life. And it's the same way that we are made new in Christ. Jesus illustrates this, and I think is kind of even hinting back at this passage of Ezekiel 37 in his interaction with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says this, He says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The work of regeneration is the work of God alone. It is not a team effort. 
it is not as some bumper sticker may communicate, God is my co-pilot. I was like, I, don't, I would rather him be the pilot, just, just uh, for the record. But the idea here is that there is, no, there is no hope for us in and of ourselves. It is the work of God alone. And this work of regeneration, of moving us from death into life, is the work initiated by the Father, it is accomplished by the Son, and it is effected by the Holy Spirit. And in all of this work, it is all done for God alone. You see, throughout Ezekiel, there are over 60 times, there is this phrase that's repeated, and you shall know that I am the Lord or so that you will know that I am the Lord. This phrase is repeated over and over and over again. And what we see is that God works and does his miraculous deeds for the purpose of being known, for the purpose of being glorified. And we read that and you're like, and some of you may even be thinking, gosh, that sounds conceited. It sounds like God is this like really immature, narcissistic person who takes selfies of himself in the bathroom. Like, why is he so obsessed with himself? <laughs> the point is, is that when God is passionate about himself, and about his glory, when he is seeking to make himself known, it is a labor of love. Because when he wants, because he doesn't just want to be known, he wants to be known by us. And when we come to know God for who he is, we find, we find the purpose and the design for which we were created. We were created to enjoy life in communion with God. So when God is passionate about making himself known, he has his glory and our good in mind because the thing that we long for ultimately is him, even though we may not see it or believe it. God is doing all things so that he might be known and that we might receive the very thing our hearts were designed for. C.S. Lewis also once said that, that, that God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. God is working to bring us into new life that we might receive the thing that we long for, namely himself. And lastly, this last vision is, is the, the idea of the new life. The dry bones that have the breath of God breathed into them experience a new life. And, and what we see, and as I said earlier, that, that the, the work of regeneration is not just God moving bad people into a state of goodness or disobedient people into a state of obedience, but dead people into life. And this is nothing short than a miracle. Recently, I remember having a conversation with uh, two friends of mine, and one was sharing about, um, about his testimony. He said, you know, my testimony is just not that awesome. You know, I just, I grew up in the church, and I've, I've known Jesus, I guess, and I've just, I've just always believed, and I don't know, it's just, I guess I don't have that amazing testimony. And my buddy Glenn, who's a little bit of a passionate guy, he said, you know what? You do have an amazing testimony. You were a dead sinner brought to life in Jesus. That's amazing. That's a miracle. We get so caught up and hung up on, on the superficial things. Like, well, you know, I, I need to have like this really rebellious stage. The, even though you may not have been significantly rebellious, I wasn't significantly rebellious, but I did not know Christ. I did not know him. I was not alive. I was dead. Dead is dead. There's not like more dry bones at the bottom. They're all dry bones. So to say that, well, you know, I feel like I need a more radical story, you know. We, we don't all need to be heroin addicts or on death row or KU alumni. Like we don't need to be that. 
<laughs> that was good. That was good. That was good, Lysanne. Thank you. <laughs> that one felt good. The, the, the point, the point there, there is a point. The point is that, yes, while on the outside it may seem more amazing that God brings a, a more obviously rebellious sinner to Christ, what you see, Jesus doesn't actually see it that way. In some ways, he is more concerned about the religious folk, about the people who seem to be closer to him. The work of God in moving us from death to life is nothing short of a miracle. This new life is something that that we need to understand, like I said, is the work of God alone, and it is nothing short of a miracle. And and this message of of, of God's regenerative work of moving us from death to life, I think is even more relevant for Christians, for people who have grown up in the church, I should say. Because as, as, as much of a blessing as it is to, to have grown up in the church, to have a Christian family, it's a great thing. But there are some dangers that can come with that. There can be the danger of just, just kind of, I've, I've been going through the motions, I've been to church my whole life, and I, I guess I'm a Christian, yeah, I've, I've done all this stuff, I've, I've attended church my whole life, I've gone to summer camp, and I've got, I don't know how many t-shirts from how many retreats, but I'm a, I'm a Christian. And see, that was my story that that I grew up in the church, I knew nothing of who Jesus really was, I had no idea what the gospel meant, I had no conviction about my sin or a love for, for God's kingdom, I didn't open the Bible except for reading Ezekiel 1, the UFO sighting, the only thing I, the only thing I really knew about the Bible was just that it's just a, a list of rules I should probably follow. It was not until my freshman year of college that I can say literally that my life changed, that I encountered Jesus in a way that my life went from not caring about him, not being interested in him at all, to seeing him as my righteousness, to seeing him as the object of my worship and affection, of my identity and worth and joy. And while I can't pinpoint the exact time and moment, I can at least look back and say, you know what, before college, I was not, I was not alive. I was, I was in that valley of dry bones. And at some point, through a series of, of conversations and interactions and God's work in my life, I came to know the Lord. And that's a beautiful thing. And so what I would say is that for those of us who have grown up in the church, while even though you may not be able to pinpoint when you came to know the Lord, I don't think that's as important. But, but if, if, we, if we look back on our lives and if we can't see, you know, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if there was a time when I was, I was in death and then in life. I just... It's just kind of, I don't know, always been there. I, maybe I've just assumed it. And I'm not the one to say where your heart is. I, I don't have that power. But what I would say is that if we look back on our lives and if we can't see a time, you know, when I went from death to life, we should ask ourselves some tough questions. That's why I love my job as a high school pastor because I love journeying with students during that age where they're starting to decide, look, I either buy this or I don't. This is either my faith, my my parents' faith that I'm copying and mimicking, or I'm saying, you know what? This is who Jesus is to me. One of my favorite verses is when Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they ask him, and Jesus asks them, who do the people say that I am? And they're like, well, some people say this, 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 and this. And then Jesus gets personal, and he says, but who do you say that I am? You know, all these people, there's all these people, they say, you know, your parents, that's what they say, your youth pastor, that's what he says, but who do you say that I am? And if we don't wrestle with these tough questions, 
they may come back to haunt us later in life. And so, like I said, I'm not trying to create guilt or doubt in your hearts, but I think we should all ask these tough questions. So, so to, to kind of bring this to, to a close here, we see that, that, that regeneration is not just moral improvement. It is not just advice that we apply. It is the work of God alone in bringing dead people into a new life. And lastly, what then does it do? What does regeneration bring about? And, and, and very quickly here, the, there are three things I think I see in the text. There could be more, but the, just for the sake of time, we'll address these. That, that when we are brought from death to life, our idols are destroyed. We, we, we are caused to obey. And we see creation being renewed. So first off, we, it destroys our idols. In Ezekiel 37, verse 23, we read this. They shall not defile themselves, referring to those that have been brought out of the valley of the dry bones. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. When we are brought out of death into life, we see two things. We come to see God for who he is. We see that, that he is the, the one that we have been longing for, that he is the true source of our identity, worth, and joy. And the second thing we see is the foolishness of all the things that we pursued in hopes of finding our identity, worth, and joy. Not that those things are foolish, but that to find one's identity and worth and joy in those things, whether, it's, whether they're good things or bad things, it's foolish because we have been designed to find that identity and worth and joy in something far greater. When we come from death to life, we see God for who he is, and it reveals to us our idols, and we realize that these things could never fulfill, never promise to bring us into the life that we have longed for. It destroys our idols. We all have this peculiar problem of attaching our hearts and our identity to things that are not God, or just to say to things that do not satisfy. And Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish theologian, he once said that it is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. When we move from death to life, we see God for who he is, and our idols begin to crumble. Secondly, it causes us to obey. And, and we see this in, in the chapter prior, in chapter 36, the famous heart surgery chapter of, of God removing our heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. In 36, verses 26 and 27, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice the order here. He doesn't say, bones, let, let's work on commandments one and two. Let's just get those down. And once you get that, then I'll see if I can get you some sinews and some veins and some skin. But then once you get all ten commandments, then, then I'll get you a heart. Okay, that's the goal, you know. That's not what he's saying. He says, no, I will bring you to life completely. And then, only then, will you respond in obedience. In fact, that's the order throughout the entire biblical narrative. 
God creates and then calls Adam and Eve to obey. That's pretty obvious. He can't, they can't obey if they're not created. But, but he draws his people, delivers, redeems his people out of slavery in Egypt and then gives them the law. The prophets declare from God that God says, I will be their God and then they will be my people. Jesus Christ comes to us so that we might come to him. And as John says in his first epistle, we love because he first loved us. This is the order. And we so naturally want to reverse it. We so naturally want to twist around and say, you know, I I need to have some kind of credit here. We think that if we attend enough church, give away enough money, that if we have enough Christian radio presets in our car, that somehow God will bless us and make us into what we've always wanted to be. But the order is that God accepts and we obey. To say, to say that the order should be we need to clean up our act, that we need to get some, some obedience in before God does his work is as silly as it is to say that these bones need to get out of the valley before God brings them to life. That's, that's what God is getting across in this vision. So lastly, what, what regeneration does, like I said, it destroys our idols, it causes us to obey, and it renews all of creation. God's scope here is not just the renewal and regeneration of individuals, it is the regeneration of all things broken and twisted and distorted by the fall. That he has not just the bones in the valley, but the valley itself in mind in his plan of making all things new. In Ezekiel 36, verses 33 and 35, we see this very clearly. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And this is beautiful. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. God brings in the whole biblical narrative here. The Bible is not just a collection of stories thrown together, but they all come together to tell one story. The story of a good God who made his good creation and sought fall into brokenness and sin and rebellion. And he has promised to bring all things back to the way that they once were, but even better. Because at the end of the book, it doesn't say, behold, I'm making all new things. It's, I am making all things new. God's scope in regeneration is not just the bones, but the valley itself. When we understand this, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take away from God's work in regenerating us, but it expands our view. And so we see that God's work is far greater than just our personal regeneration and salvation. It is the restoration of all things. So what is all this about? I mean, what does all this then mean? What's the point? And what does all this point to? Regeneration, as I said, is more than just the work of God making bad people better. And it is even more than just an eerily beautiful metaphor in the form of a prophetic vision. It is the unbelievable gift that we might be shifted from death into life because of the life and death of Jesus Christ. This story, this sermon in the cemetery, if you will, is pointing to Jesus and his gospel. It is pointing to the one who became flesh and bone for us so that we might be delivered from the curse of the law and sin itself and be set free to live as we were designed to. 
It is the good news that we can and one day will be gloriously and completely made new. This story points to the gospel that, as I said, doesn't just make bad people good. It brings dead people to life. It points to the gospel that promises forgiveness and the presence of God's spirit in us. Because the same voice that spoke through Ezekiel to bring the bones to life is the same voice that shouted and declared with authority, Lazarus, come forth. It's the same voice that said, I am the resurrection and the life. That he who comes to me, although he die, he will never die. It's the same voice that also said, behold, I am making all things new. This is not just an eerie story about bones being brought back from the dead. It is pointing to the work of our Savior, the one who is bringing hope out of sorrow, joy out of despair, and life out of death. And it is this story, it is this news, not advice, that we celebrate and we remember. When we come to the Lord's table, to feast and to celebrate, we remember the good news, not the good advice of Jesus. The good news that declares you were dead, you were an enemy, you were an object of the wrath of God, and now you are an object of his affection. That you used to be slaves to sin, now you are sons and daughters. We come to the table to celebrate this. And as we come, as we come to feast at the table, I, I want us just, to, I just want to ask three questions that kind of maybe put us in categories. Is one, are you a person who's still in that valley of dry bones? If so, I invite you to, to not take the cup and the bread, but to take Christ instead, to, to reflect on the fact that he can promise you that your old life can be nailed to the cross and experience a new life altogether. For those of you who may find yourself still in the valley, but maybe you think you're out of it, that you've grown up, you just kind of assumed and associated yourself with Christianity, but you've never moved from death to life. That promise is still very much so offered to you as well. And for those of us who have, by God's grace, been brought out of that valley into new life, we have an opportunity to remind ourselves of how great our deadness is so that we might celebrate in the life that we have in Christ. We are new creations in him. I invite you to come to the Lord's table. Let me pray as we move into this time of worship. Father in heaven, we, we come to you in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit to, to worship you and to honor you for who you are. And we ask, Lord, that as we celebrate and remember who you are and what you have done, that, that we would find a new joy in the reality that you have shifted us from death into life, from darkness into light and that you have moved us from being rebels into sons and daughters. It is this truth that we celebrate and declare. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.